Welcome to the 99 Challenges Podcast. On each episode in this show, we bring you one challenge that your business can face and invite experts to provide insights on overcoming these challenges. This episode is brought to you by Anywhere Consulting. We solve problems for growing businesses. We follow up each episode with more content at the99challenges.com or at anywhere.consulting. Welcome to the 99 Challenges show. I'm your host, Peter Benet. Today's focus is legal. We are going to dive deep into how your business should approach legal matters. What legal foundation should you set depending on the stage or the size of your company? We will give you insights on how to make sure you never have to worry about legal, helping you keep your focus on growing your business. I invited Vanessa Chalas. She is the founder of Tiger Law, a UK-based law firm working with growing businesses. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So can you tell our audience a bit more about yourself and um, more about Tiger Law, please? Yeah, sure. So I qualified in 2003 and I spent the next few years in commercial litigation. So business owners would come and see me when things had already gone wrong. Yeah. It be because there was an issue between the founding owners or any kind of contractual dispute with clients, customers, suppliers, distributors, those sorts of things, extending all the way to defamation. And it's a really hard thing to market. You're really hoping that no one ever needs to speak to you. But here's my card. If it does go horribly wrong, a commercial litigator is the last person anyone ever wants to speak to, let alone pay. So you can imagine it's a stressful job to be in. And it's very quickly apparent that prevention is better than cure. So when I set up my own legal consultancy six years ago, exactly now, in-house legals, it was intended to be the opposite of most law firms in terms of how we charged, how we approached our clients. It was intended to feel that we were in your corner from the off. And it was all about preparing contracts, which would mean that our clients never had to speak to anyone like me in the future. When it went wrong, as that grew and the size of the clients grew, it became obvious that they needed some of the stuff which is reserved for only law firms to offer in this jurisdiction, at least. So that was around property and issues like that. So we started Tiger Law in 2017. And since that, we've grown exponentially. We now do litigation as well, because when your clients come to rely on you for one thing, they want to come to you for all the other things as well. So that's how we've grown quite organically. But it's with the same ethos, not prolonging matters that don't need to be prolonged and always having a very commercial view on what's best for the client, not all the legal niceties. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You, I'm sure you're familiar with the painkiller and the vitamin story. And litigation is more like selling the painkiller for the patient. It's First of all, it's easy, but marketing it for the long term is really hard. But most of the companies and most of the businesses, they don't really understand, I think, that you need to do some preliminary actions to make sure that you won't feel the pain at the end. I view legal as a mandatory field which a business owner should handle or take care of. But 
there are different needs for different businesses. I think we can group these needs based on the stage of the business. Let's say early stage or startup company or established growing business or medium-sized company and so on. First, if we focus on an early stage business, what do you think would be the primary group of needs in terms of legal? And we do startup packages for people where we try mm-hmm. to roll up everything that they need, but it really is belt and braces. And I'm always aware of people doing too much planning as opposed to getting out there and selling and testing what they're selling and making some money. So you have to get that balance and that balance may depend on funding to an extent, but let's be commercial about this. I would say that the number one thing that any fledgling business needs to be taken care of is its outward facing contracts. Whereas it's nice if you've got business partners to have something in writing between them, perhaps before we even get there, we need to be thinking about how we're contracting with our customers. Who are our customers? Where do they find us? How do they form contracts with us? How do we want to be paid? Are there any specific uh, bits of legislation that we need to be aware of? For example, if you're selling to consumers, you've got far more onerous obligations towards them than if you were selling to businesses, in this jurisdiction at least. So having the right sets of terms and conditions in place And if you're selling online, your website policies, uh, I think will be the starting point. So in terms of privacy policy, refund policy, maybe T's and C's, things like that, right? Your T's and C's can encompass most of what you need. Mm -hmm. Um, Privacy policy, if you're online, can be separate to that. And then you're thinking about how your users are journeying through your website and what consent you need to collect. This just means that you've thought properly about how you're operating as a business. Terms and conditions are not one size fits all. And it will be when you have a niggle that you realize that yours don't quite do the job. If you've cut and paste them from another business you think is in the same kind of sector, they really should set out exactly how you're operating, how you're offering your services, what you're promising and what you're not promising. A really easy example there is you're offering website and SEO services. One of the things you're not going to promise is a huge upturn in your clients' businesses because that depends on things other than you. For example, the economy. Goodness me, look around now. You wouldn't want to have a guarantee that your SEO services are a magic wand. Where are you going to put that? Because your marketing will say that it is a magic wand and that's how you're selling your services. So just thinking about how that stuff fits together and how you're contracting with your end user. Let's let's grow a bit further in terms of company size. So let's say you're an established startup. Let's say you're a growing business, newly funded business. What would be the next step? To me, it would be some kind of legal process or journey that we set to acquire more funding for the growth. Once the business is growing, you need to hire people. And that involves a lot of legal stuff. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, it doesn't need to be quite that painful, but it can be (laughs) get it wrong. HR is a horrible thing to get wrong. It really is about getting the right policies and procedures in place, and they're updated annually a number of times. Yeah, there are ways of setting that up. 
and it doesn't mean being on an expensive retainer. One of the things that the founders will need to think about is, let's say it's a limited company, everyone's a shareholder and a director. There are various elements of those relationships which they need to have buttoned down. So it gets confusing for people because they might be wearing three hats at the same time. One is the shareholder, the owner of the company. One is the director, who's a bit like the babysitter, um, the parent, the outward human face of the company. Directors owe the company and the shareholders duties of care, and fiduciary duties and so on. If you're both of those people, you owe yourself those duties. It doesn't matter until you have a falling out. And then the third hat is potentially you're on the payroll and you're an employee as well. Setting out roles and expectations is really important within companies. And it's not necessarily the case that all of the directors are also shareholders. So decision making has got to be a really key thing to get right. For example, if you've got minority and majority shareholders, how are shareholders making decisions? Minority shareholders want unanimous votes. Majority shareholders want majority votes. Directors, again, have you got an even split? Have you got two and two? If you've got an even number rather than an odd number, you can very quickly reach a deadlock. So we're not only thinking about these elements when we're setting up how this is going to work across the company's foundational documents, the articles, um, the shareholders agreement, which is a private document between the shareholders, it's not on company's house, and then any director services agreements, which again set up roles and responsibilities of directors who aren't just employees, they've got rather larger capacities to fill for the company. Then if we're thinking about taking on funding, we need to decide what that looks like. Sometimes founders want loans rather than giving equity out. If you're giving equity out in exchange for funding, what does that look like? Do you want that investor to have voting rights? Depending on your uh, negotiating position, that investor might be able to insist on voting rights, might insist on a chair at the board. And there are different kinds of shares which might mean they get their dividends first for example, or if you come to sell the company, they get the first slice. So all of this can be written up into an updated shareholders agreement. But at the outset, it's very much worth ensuring that your visions are aligned for now, five years, what are your exit strategies, what are your investment strategies, how do you want to grow this, to make sure you agree early on because you need to present a united front to anyone who's then putting money into your business. Yes, yes, totally. It's a bit complex story. However, when you're growing further and you're a medium-sized business, for a startup company or for a smaller company, it does make sense to work with an external service provider like you because they don't have the resources to hire an internal and they don't even need an internal legal um, no i don't think so no yeah it it doesn't make sense however when you're a medium-sized client or medium-sized business what would be the main benefit if you hire someone like you externally and why don't you need to hire internally someone interesting that i have been in-house counsel myself previously Uh and there is potentially a little bit of a misunderstanding 
that people who haven't hired in-house counsel and general counsel before don't quite get that you may have a solicitor in your organization mm -hmm. but that solicitor's first duty is to the court and it is to our professional standards it's not to you just because you're paying their salary essentially that solicitor is sitting inside their only client but it's still that relationship so mm -hmm. the question is one of scale probably and budget it's likely that if you have in-house counsel, you're not measuring their time in the way that time is measured by law firms generally. Now, I'm not saying the way that law firms generally measure time is a good thing. In fact, I don't think it is, and it's not how we work at Tiger. But in terms of which is better and which is worse, I think it's got to be down to what suits the client. I personally prefer exposure to more clients. I learn more, I stay updated, and I'm able to spot opportunities for clients. I've got more exposure to the outside world, perhaps, than if I was inside a client only dealing with that. I think that Clients generally need to be aware of what they're leaning on their legal advisors for. Most legal advisors are not business advisors. So having one inside your business doesn't mean they're any more commercially aware of mm -hmm. your business needs than one sitting inside a law firm. If you think about the level of qualification and experience of solicitor that you would want inside your firm, you would want someone who had cut their teeth and had proved themselves in private practice, probably because that person is not going to be scared, second guessing, which junior solicitors spend a lot of time doing, whether they show you or not. You're going to want someone fairly senior who's capable of running stuff properly, who's mm. got teeth, and that person won't be cheap. So you have to measure what you really need as opposed to the potentially cosmetic reason for having in-house counsel. For businesses which are up and coming, we've got several solutions around that. And you can actually have an in-house legal department signed off on your letterhead without having to pay the full salary of a solicitor over the course of the year. Some clients just don't want to get involved, don't want a legal department and do just want to outsource the work in the same way that they outsource HR work. And we do that differently as well with Tiger HR. So there's a lot that goes into it, the cosmetics, the budget, the expectations of the client. I think that's all got to be decided. How can you make sure that you do understand the industry of what that client is into because one of the main reasons someone hires an external law firm is because of their client relationship process plus their expertise some clients have special needs if they are a tech business or a, or a technological based startup company let's say they do want to work with a legal company who has experience within that field the whole industry presents unique questions and unique opportunities that require unique answers from the legal service provider. So how can you make sure that you do have this kind of industry knowledge across multiple industries, let's say? Interesting. Just to go back to your very first point there, service providers, that's all we are. That's yeah. all lawyers are. 
Yes. Um, nothing more, just expensive service providers. It's the clients who are doing the do. They're making the wheels go round, not the lawyers. The lawyers are just there to make sure they do it safely. A more in-depth knowledge of your client's industry will obviously facilitate greater awareness and you're more aware of pitfalls, of opportunities, risks, merits, and so on, so you can advise your client more robustly. Having said that, the contract is a contract. We've got various sectors which are quite disparate, such as construction, healthcare. When we're speaking to new clients, if they're in a sector that we don't know, then we take the time to tell them what we do know, ask them about themselves, their business, their sectors, and say we haven't got direct experience within this particular sector, but these are the risks that we can foresee. We'd be really happy to work with you. Of course we could. If it's completely outside of our remit, then I might look to introduce a different firm to that client, but I'll always be up front. And it's almost worth the prospective client having a conversation with a lawyer they're thinking of instructing to get a feel and to interview and interview each other and be wary of dabbling. You want someone who's got the confidence in your area to be able to offer you what you need. Yeah, this is the very same reason why I ask this question that most of our audiences, they do want to know how to select or pick a legal firm for their company. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned um, uh, a lot Tiger HR. Most of the time, companies, they do have at least an internal head of people, head of staff, some HR director. They do have someone dedicated who, who handles at least the team culture, hiring process and stuff. But I rarely see uh, a dedicated legal person. How can you and what can you offer as a legal company to other clients? What is the external resource benefit that they can get employing an external HR. Yeah, I set up Tiger HR alongside Tiger Law because the size of our clients had grown to the point where they were all employers. And I'd been researching the very well-known retainer-style HR providers out there. Mm -hmm. The one thing we definitely don't do, unless we're begged, is offer a minimum term contract on a retainer, which auto-renews. Your listeners will know who I'm talking about there. What we can offer is training and support for internal HR managers. We're not trying to replace them. We're trying to help them because... People in HR will have a range of specialisms. So you touched on HR strategy there around culture. That's not the same thing as maintaining up-to-date contracts and staff handbooks, which are more mechanical. And somewhere in between, you've got what can be very unpleasant scenarios for SMEs around grievances and disciplinaries. So we can ghostwrite stuff all the way through to chairing meetings minute-taking and the rest of it. So again, it's the same with the law firm and the HR. We're finding out what our clients need and then offering that in a very bespoke fashion. So rather than offering monthly retainers, where no one's ever really sure if you're getting more or less than what you paid for, 
and um, any extra charges which might attach to that. We tend to offer blocks of hours which can be used up as and when you need them because HR will tend to be, once your contracts and staff handbook are in place and you're happy with your policies and it's ticking along nicely, you might have no need for HR for another few months and then something might crop up. If you've been paying your retainer all that time and getting no service, and then one month you need triple the number of hours, most retainers won't allow you to roll on. You've just lost the hours you didn't use. We work with our clients in a number of ways. We either stand in as a complete HR department and do it all, so they're not even hiring an HR manager, or we're working with the HR manager and supporting how they're dealing with a grievance, for example, or helping them through introducing updated contracts. One of the things we make sure of, and we've seen other providers doing this, is that the policies shouldn't be part of the employment contract because policies need to change like the wind. You don't want that to be changing the contract of employment every time you update a policy, for example. And the other thing which I love, being a litigator by trade really, is that HR consultancies, their stuff, their communications with their clients is not legally privileged. There is no lawyer-client confidentiality attaching to that. There is some case law around this, but ultimately... That's the position. Whereas as soon as you have a lawyer on board, it's privileged. So it can't be disclosed. So it's quite nice to have that backup. And the way we work with clients is we do the mechanical stuff at the HR. If it starts to get contentious, we can say we think it's time for this to move over to the law firm. And then you're in that lawyer client bubble and hopefully it will go no further the issue with hr is also that people have legal expenses cover on their general insurance for their business if they put one foot wrong they have voided that cover so we work with insurance brokers who get quite annoyed about this because they've sold a policy to their client their client believes they've got legal expenses cover if an employee does ever take them to the tribunal but they don't tick one box they put one foot wrong they've not got that that expenses covered i see so many pain points with hr and dealing with hr and and people and you actually started this whole conversation with the litigation part which addresses these pain points speaking of pain what kind of examples you can disclose obviously without mentioning any names or, or clients that are the most popular pain points which drive clients' relationships on your side? Oh, something that we deal with week in, week out is this mishmash of relationships where people have started a business together and the collections of people will be parents and children, parents and children's spouses, yeah, best friends and their spouses, siblings, all of these people and pain points will always come from the personal dynamics. It's almost as if these very close-knit relationships don't afford the boundaries that professional relationships allow people to hide behind. So things become very inflamed very early on. And a disagreement over whether or not to acquire that lease 
becomes a power play between brothers, for example. It, it will tend to be what seems to be a simple financial decision will actually bring years of... Sorry, sorry to jump in, but these are family drama. Yes, exactly. And I got into commercial litigation because I didn't, I knew I was going to be a litigator, but I didn't want to deal with human misery. So I didn't go into family and I didn't go into personal injury. I thought it's just going to be black and white. It's just business. In my early 20s, that's what I thought. Really, now as a business owner myself, business owners live and breathe their businesses. They're just, it's integral to everything. And it's anything, personal. It's deeply personal. So, yeah, that's the worst kind of stuff that we see. But pain points will generally be around any point of change, any investment, any decreasing of size of the business due to the economy, wanting to acquire another business, investments. And it's those times at which you've got to have quite spiky conversations with people. Yeah. And just make sure that you're all aligned. This podcast is produced by Anywhere Consulting. We solve problems for companies to overcome their business challenges through a dedicated and tailored marketing and business consulting. If you want to learn more about us and how we work and who we work with, please visit anywhere.consulting. Sure. This is far off from legal a little bit, but I do want to address that because I think it is important for the listeners that we have. You are really active on LinkedIn. I saw all of your updates and all of your content that you share, which is highly unusual or at least rare compared to other lawyers and legal companies. What made you to decide to go all in with your uh, LinkedIn profile and, pro- and platform? Sure. So this isn't as a result of COVID. I'll just preface that. I started paying more attention to social media and LinkedIn in the December before the big bad beginning to 2020. And the reason I made that decision was we had got to where we were due to word of mouth and referrals and growing relationships with accountants who referred their clients to us. Probably most business owners can relate to this. There's this feeling of never wanting to rest on your laurels. I never wanted to relax into thinking, yeah, everything's going to be okay. I don't need to do anything more now. It's got its own momentum. So to combat that, I thought I'm going to have another look at LinkedIn. I had not been a huge fan of it before. It seemed very dry and dull. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do some business kind of posts and I'm going to get into this and do some more on social media. So I'd had a bit of a run up to it by the first lockdown. And by that point, I'd already started to meet some interesting people From a personal perspective, I have found the connections that I've made on LinkedIn and Twitter to be really quite meaningful. And I found a lot of very like-minded people who are really driving forwards, who won't be cowed um, by what they're going through. And it's a lot better for me than Facebook, which I've really got no interest in anymore. Whereas on LinkedIn, you get very driven, ambitious, down-to-earth, people who are conversing on a very human level about themselves and their businesses and I think this just clicked for me 
So professionally speaking, what happened was at the beginning of the first lockdown, I thought we're in for a quiet period. I'm going to redo our websites and pay some more attention to social. Ha ha ha. No such quiet period whatsoever. And I decided to grow the firm. And I had started to meet people in various networks. And I thought rather than being focused solely on SME clients, given that we've had to do some stuff for the private needs of our owner managers around buying and selling houses for them, doing wills for them, trusts for them, those sorts of things. It seemed time really to offer that as a proper service. So we opened the family and the private client departments at Tiger. I think I offered the first remote training contract in the country, if not the first, one of the first. And we grew the team from probably six to coming up to about 20 now. And LinkedIn really has been the way that's happened. I've never recruited normally. I've never recruited via an agency. I've got to know people over a course of months, spotted an opportunity and thought, you need to come and work with me. I want to offer you a platform to do what you do. And really didn't even go through much of an interview process with most people because I'd seen them. I'd followed them. They'd followed me. I knew who they were. I knew what they were about. So that's been the consequence of going all in. Yeah, it's amazing. It's been quite a journey. Uh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad that it worked really well for you. Do you see any trends between legal and, and client relationships or in legal general that we will experience or have to deal with it within the next one or two or maybe five years so you've got career acquisition professionals who are going around hoovering firms so they're buying businesses where founders have actually got to the end of their natural working lives they don't want to deal with what's coming over the next two or three years they want to cash out or people who had a go but haven't quite made it, but have got stock or equipment that they want to sell. So the people who are buying these businesses are coming up with no cash down deals for the sellers. For the sellers, this means they've got, I've seen up to eight years now, eight years of payment for a business with no personal guarantees, a corporate buyer, which can be wound up at any point. Now, it strikes me that even if you've got a no cash on the day of completion deal, you've really got to think about this. Um, from a buyer's perspective, what are you walking into? You think you're getting it cheap because you're not giving cash on the day. Are you actually going to pay a lot more than you anticipated because you haven't done due diligence because you thought you're not paying much? And then next year you get a huge tax bill. And from a seller's point of view, who are you selling to? What I'm tending to see is people are forming brand new companies to buy shares or assets. Those companies have got no other assets and the shareholders and directors aren't personally underwriting your sale price. So what guarantees have you got that they'll continue to pay for the next five or eight years? Just to reflect back quickly, I don't really get why a founder or principal shareholder would sell to anyone who doesn't present cash on the deal. At least an agreement. Desperation. Just wanted yeah. to get out. Yeah. And I don't like it. 
But what it does mean is that people think it's a cheap deal, so they don't put the legals in place. Mm -hmm. And that's what will come and bite. Any other trends that you want to mention? HR, the big one, furlough, using furlough improperly, forcing employees into sham redundancies, some really unsavory practices going on. And if you're an employer and you're using these practices, don't forget, ACAS is free for employees and ex-employees. And people are much more knowledgeable about what their rights are. So don't put yourself at risk by a, you know, making a knee-jerk decision on getting rid of someone and calling it a redundancy. People are using this period of flux to make some quite questionable moves. Even the, the big companies you see it every day so just continue to tread safely in hr we're seeing a lot more stuff coming through a lot more settlement agreements as well you you are a uk-based firm so i'm terribly sorry but i cannot not address the elephant in the room so do you think that anything will change in terms of like legal matters after the Brexit now? We're already beginning to see the erosion of some of the legislation that the EU brought in to protect individuals, employment, human rights and so on. Mm -hmm. There are already focus groups talking about how this erosion will occur. So yes, I think those things will happen. We are already drafting contracts differently, particularly around data protection. We've only just really got on with the GDPR and we're looking at more transition around that. I've got clients who have been in huge pain, their business being importing and exporting with the EU. Look, I'm half Greek, my husband's not British, I'm European through and through. I'm proud of that. What does strike me is that there's a lot of regret, a lot of people recognising that they were misled and there will be continuing pain. The double whammy, the hell of it all, that we had COVID and Brexit at the same time. And when you spot those empty shelves, I'm making a face at you, which um, won't pick up on recording, but you get where I'm coming from. I think that's going to be a long theme. It changes the way lawyers advise. It changes the way lawyers prepare contracts. And you do really need to go back and have a look at the contracts you've currently got in place. If there's any cross-border stuff going on to make sure that they're still fit for purpose. Just to end with a happy note, I'm just starting my business right now. I have a couple of co-founders maybe and some one or two people working for me. What would be your advice where should i focus my attention in terms of legal first how should i take care of this problem so there won't be any pain at the end just to revisit your terms and conditions they don't need to be war and peace i wrote about the planning pit get out of the planning pit stop planning start doing start making some money test what you're selling something's better than nothing do your research put in place what you can to provide to your clients to make sure that something written if it's not written you're falling back on legislation so something is better than nothing when you've made some money then come back to it maybe start looking around for the kind of law firm that you want to work with make sure that you click with the person you're going to be working with make sure it's the right style don't go for name and don't get perhaps bamboozled by marketing make contact with people 
and click. So people tag me into people's requests for legal services and nine out of 10 responses from lawyers will be, yes, I do this. I do contracts. I'm called Peter. Call me on. And it's never how I respond. If that's what you want, fine. But just make sure you find someone whose personality and aspirations fit with yours. That is so cool. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. It's been fun. We will be back with another challenge. And until the next episode, please subscribe to our podcast and follow our journey with more content at the99challenges.com. Thank you and speak soon. Thank you for tuning in to the 99 Challenges show. We follow up each episode with more content at the99challenges.com or at anywhere.consulting. Have a specific challenge you want us to discuss? Want to be a guest on our show? Feel free to drop us a line at info at anywhere.consulting. Until next time, take care and grow.